This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That is Matthew 18, 6. Those are the words of Jesus. Guys, we're so happy to have you here on today's episode. I'm just going to tell you right from the jump. Today is a very, very heavy episode. Okay, so uh, I'll probably give several different warnings. This is a major warning to parents that discretion is advised with this one because some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about on this podcast is incredibly upsetting, incredibly disturbing. So there's your fair warning, but let's get into some happier stuff. We got a knife that we're giving away. So again, Blaine Stevenson and Sean Stevenson of Stevenson Knives have given us this knife here. They custom made this for you guys here at Undaunted Life. This is their Florida Hunter. Guys, if you're watching this on YouTube or on Rumble, this is the Florida Hunter that we were talking to you guys about last week. Uh, it normally retails for around $300. It is a 52100 ball, bear- ball bearing steel. That handle right there, look at that handle, see if you can get it in focus. That is their Kraby, uh, Kraby, <laughs> crazy fiber scales handle. And then we've got this beautiful handmade leather sheath. It is an absolutely gorgeous knife. Guys, they made this so that we can raise money here at Undaunted Life. And as I mentioned last week, we evolved and you know we made it to where it's not just going to support Undaunted Life, but 50% of the proceeds that we get from this raffle is going to go to help us with our operations. And then 50%, the other 50% is going to go to a local pregnancy resource center here in my town. It's called the Hope Pregnancy Center. So guys, what this whole, what the pregnancy center does is if you're a woman and you have a crisis pregnancy of some kind, they bring you in, they have staff, they do ultrasounds. I literally talked to a gal who reads the ultrasounds for this facility. So I, I can confirm that's something that they do. They don't just minister to the mother and the baby. They also minister to the father of the baby as well. Uh, when the baby is born, they make sure that they have, they have money, they have rent, they have uh, formula, they have cribs, they have strollers, they have all that kind of stuff. That is what we're going to support. So this is how you enter guys. So Basically, how you enter is any person that goes to the Undaunted Life donation website, which is just undaunted.life backslash donate, or it's here in the show notes. Every $20 that you donate will get you one spot in the randomizer. Okay. Now, the randomizer is going to happen on February the 23rd. That is two weeks from now. But whenever you put a donation in, make sure you put the word knife in the comment section because there's a little section right there at the bottom where you can put in a word or a note or something like that. Make sure you mention knives. So again, every $20 that you donate equals one spot in the raffle. So if you donate a thousand bucks, that's 50 times in the randomizer, a hundred bucks is five times in the randomizer. And just a reminder to all current donors, if you didn't hear me last week, if you are currently a monthly donor with Undaunted Life, I went ahead and put your name in the randomizer twice. So you're already good to go and squared away, but we already have some monthly donors that have done additional donations to not only support us, but also to support the, uh, the hope pregnancy center. And again, I will likely do a video on Instagram and, you know, show it here on the podcast or something like that for February 23rd to announce it. But again, the donation link is in the show notes. You can go to undaunted.life backslash donate as well. Again, do not forget to put the word knife in the comment section. And again, just a thank you to Sean and Blaine Stevenson and Stevenson knives for doing this. And again, guys, 
guys, if you haven't left a review, that is something that helps us with this show. We're close to a thousand reviews on Apple Podcasts, so that's pretty cool. So if you haven't left a review yet, make sure you leave us five stars and a few comments to let us know why you like what we're doing. And obviously, we're also supported by Origin. So guys, you've heard me talk about it a bunch. Geese, jeans, boots on the Jocko Fuel side. You've got the energy drinks. You've got the supplements. Use the code UNDAUNTED to get 10% at OriginMain.com or OriginUSA.com. Use the code UNDAUNTED for 10% off. So last week, last Thursday, did an episode, you know, just kind of low key. Some people think I woke up and chose violence and maybe I did last week, but last week we talked about Andy Stanley being a heretic because he is. And on last week's episode, we didn't do any quick hitters because I wanted that episode to stand alone. This episode will stand alone as well. But on the Andy Stanley episode, I got some interesting responses from the audience. So I did want to go over a couple of things. So this may uh, take me a little bit. It'll make sense here in a little, a uh, little bit before we get to the, the main, uh, I guess, subject of today. But a couple of questions came up that I got from audience members that I want to address. One question was this. You encouraged anyone that currently attends any of Andy Stanley's churches or network churches to leave and find another church. Shouldn't you encourage those people to stay there and fight for what's right? So I understand where this question is coming from, and I agree with the sentiments of the question. But your responsibility, and this is exactly what I told to the person that asked me this question, your responsibility is primarily to your family. Okay, to supporting your wife and your children. That is what your primary responsibility is and should be. Not the health of North Point Community Church or any of the associated churches. That is not your job. Okay, your job is to make sure that you are spiritually leading your family in a very good direction, that you're performing headship over that entire process. Okay, so if Andy Stanley's churches go down in number, which I don't assume that they will, that's not really a problem that you should necessarily be worried about. But also the thing is, is let's say you go to one of the associated churches. So not North Point where Andy Stanley actually preaches live, but you go to one of the other ones. You go to Buckhead Church or something like that. Do you honestly think that you just as a singular member are going to be able to change the entire Andy Stanley apparatus by complaining? Like, and, and you might like you, you and, and your wife and maybe your, your home group, or I don't know what they do over there. Maybe they have Sunday school classes or something like that, but you all get together and there's a few dozen of you and you, you know, you're going to make it uncomfortable for Andy Stanley and the staff and all those different things. Do you honestly think that you're going to change Andy Stanley and his church? Is that what you think is going to happen? Cause I'm going to tell you something that's way more likely to happen is that you're going to get pulled down with his church. That that's the, what's most likely to happen because again, they're very pragmatic. And they're very um, attractive in the things that they say. So the odds are is that the siren song that they're singing is going to influence you even more. So there's more to say there, but I'll leave it there. The other question that I got is, so how should people that work on staff at churches treat gay people? Right. I had a staff member at a church say, like, how should we treat people that come in and say that they're gay or whatever? Like, aren't all sins the same? So I would say to you, like, treat them like any other sinner, any other sinner in your church. So don't ignore their sin, call out their sin, point them towards repentance. And if their sin persists and it's detrimental to the body, expel them from the body. I mean, we see this in the Pauline letters. We see this in Acts. Like this is pretty standard. But in terms of sins all being the same, again, I'll point you back to 1 Corinthians 6, 18 that I talked about last week. Free from sexual immorality, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's a description there that that sin is wholly different than other sins. Now, when Christ or when God is looking upon us, he sees sinner, unless we have the blood of Christ covering us, right? Sinner, right? Categorically, you're either binary, yes, sinner, or no, you know, covered, you know, you're you're taken care of. But to, to pretend that 
you know, telling a white lie and, you know, performing a homosexual act is the same thing. Like, again, that's like a church camp idea that, oh, you know, all sins are the same. And, you know, murderers are just the same as people that cheat on their taxes. No, it is a fundamentally different thing. And if you kind of soft pedal homosexuals that are in your congregations, uh, that, that, that becomes a major, major problem. And all this kind of coalesced this week because, you know, here I am, I've got this, this clip of this preacher, you know, doing these things, Andy Stanley, and then I go back and look at his past and, you know, again, go back to listen to episode 423 from last week where I, I kind of unpack that. But then I came across a clip this week from Pastor J.D. Greer, okay? So to be honest, I didn't know, I, don't, I know the name, uh, like I know he's kind of prominent in, in the Christian sphere, like he's the lead pastor of the Summit Church, which is a multi-site church in North Carolina, I believe, and he's formerly the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, the SBC, which is the largest denomination in America, and he was president from 2018 to 2021. But this clip came across, and again, I've never seen him speak. I never watched, you know, an entire sermon of his. I just, you know, tangentially knew about his name. But this clip came out, and there are some concerns that I have about this clip. So it's about a minute here, so let's go to the clip. You say, you must say, I love you more than I love being right. And so even if you don't see things my way, I'm going to keep bringing you close, and I'm going to remain committed to you. This is where the Christian community has so badly failed to live out Jesus's ministry. The church ought to be the safest place on the planet for a teenager with same-sex attraction to reveal that or to come out. Because sinners were always safe exposing their hearts to Jesus. It does not mean that we consent or agree. It just means we never turn away and we never stop loving and we never stop drawing them close. And we, church, we must be the biggest advocates, against, biggest advocates against discrimination and abuse against the gay community. And where we have not church, we must repent. And if some of you have been the victims of that abuse, tragically, often it was done in the name of Jesus. That was not Jesus. That was Satan dressed up in Jesus's clothes because that is not what Jesus was. So to be clear from the jump here, this clip alone, again, just under 60 seconds, it's not enough to write off J.D. Greer entirely, right? Because I saw some people doing that online. It's like, I certainly don't think it's enough to call him a heretic. He, I don't think he's in the same category as Andy Stanley. In all honesty, I actually also tried and tried to find this entire sermon from when this clip, from where this clip was taken. And I, I spent a good amount of time on it. And I just couldn't find it because I wanted to watch that clip in the context of the entire sermon. So I couldn't. So, you know, you can tinge the things that I'm about to say through that lens that, yes, I'm just basically evaluating this one clip. But there are some concerns and I have some questions. So if I were speaking with Greer, I would ask him several questions. One would be this. You, so this was a, you know, from this little clip here, he said, you must say, I love you more than I love being right. So what I would ask him is, is rightness over sin included or excluded from that statement. You know, you must say, I love you more than I love being right. But what if you're right about the person's sin? Do you need to love them more than pointing out the truthfulness of their sinful behavior and their sinful heart? Is rightness over sin included or excluded from that statement? Also, uh, you know, from a quote from the clip there, the church ought to be the safest place on the earth for a teenager with same-sex attraction to reveal that or to come out. So we kind of stuck that on the end there, to reveal that or to come out. So what I would ask him is, do you believe that identity is found in Christ or in sexual preference? Because just saying the words or to come out, in modern parlance, we take that to mean someone is announcing to the world, to their family and to the rest of the world, that they are gay, that they are 
trans, that they are, you know, non-binary, pansexual, whatever. That's the language that we use. And so, yes, you should be safe enough inside of a church to reveal that you have same-sex attraction, but to come out, that's, that's a wholly different thing. Because if the church goes along with that, they are saying, yes, your identity is as a homosexual person. Not that your identity is found in Christ and that you're a new creation, but that your identity is found in your sexual preference, which again is a choice. There's also a quote here. He says, sinners are always safe exposing their hearts to Jesus. What I would ask Greer is, what do you mean by safe? And was their sin safe? Because Jesus had this really pesky habit of pointing out people's sins. He also had this really pesky habit of forgiving them for their sins. But he didn't just skip over the pointing out their sins and go straight to the forgiveness. He didn't do that. Because if you don't know that your behavior is sinful, then what do you need to turn away from? Because again, repenting means turning, like 180 degrees, going the opposite direction. So if you're not, if you don't understand your level of depravity, then what exactly are we talking about here? Another quote was, we church must be the biggest advocates against discrimination and abuse against the gay community. I would ask Greer, what do you mean by discrimination and what do you mean by abuse? And I guess this, this leads to another question I would ask him is, why do you feel the need to apologize to gay people for, you know, generic and undefined things like, you know, discrimination or abuse? Is it possible that you're apologizing to people with same-sex attraction that merely had their sin and depravity pointed out by a person that was lovingly directing them towards Christ? Because let's say that you're in a homosexual relationship and you're acting out homosexually, okay? So you don't just have same-sex attraction, but you're actually in a relationship where you're acting out and doing things sexually with somebody of the same sex, okay? And somebody lovingly points out to you that that is sinful and that you should repent and not do that anymore. In our modern times, that would be considered discrimination. That would be considered abuse. So, J.D. Greer, I would like to know what you mean by discrimination and abuse, because obviously, if people are being discriminated and abused in an unjust way, I'll stand with you on that. But pointing out someone's sin, yeah, I, I can't really cosign that. So there's, there's several reasons why a clip like that is concerning, even in context, okay? So the first thing is, is he's reading from what seems to be a notebook, but the notebook, I guess, is supposed to look like a Bible, which is just kind of strange to me. And I mean, again, I've never really watched any of his sermons, so is that like his thing? Like, what's with the notebook? Because he was literally, like, reading his sermon to me. I mean, I think that church has, like, 12 different campuses, so you think they'd have enough money to, like, buy the guy a podium or an iPad to make it not so obvious that he's just sitting there reading his sermon to us, but whatever. But the clip seems to be downplaying the sin of homosexuality. Again, I'm using this one clip without the context because I couldn't find the context. This clip seems to be downplaying homosexuality, the sin of homosexuality. This is kind of a, a new modern thing. The clip also sounds oddly like many of the other, you know, homosexuality is just a sin like every other sin clips. That, that we've seen from pastors recently. I, you know, I addressed that just a few minutes ago. But he was also once quoted as saying that the Bible, and this is a direct quote, quote, appears more to whisper on sexual sin, unquote. That the Bible appears to whisper on sexual sin. I think there's a lot of people that were in Sodom and Gomorrah that uh, would maybe quibble with that, would maybe disagree with the fact that the Bible only whispers about that. Now, I did hear somewhere that he said that he regrets using those words and would not use those words today, which, you know, I couldn't find out if that was true or not, but let's just assume that it is true, that he does regret it. Does he still mean it, though? Because I've regretted a lot of things that I've said that I still mean, 
that I still believe in, but I regret saying them because maybe it's wrong timing or wrong place or something like that. But I would be curious, like, do you still mean that, that the Bible appears to just whisper about sexual sin? And again, that clip by itself is concerning, but most of the things in it, you know, to be honest, could be clarified or, you know, just explained away. So that clip in a vacuum is just really not that big of a deal. The problem is that clip isn't the only concerning thing that J.D. Greer has said. Now, I'll try to go quickly through this because we got a lot of ground to cover in our, our you know, main topic today. But he used to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, like I mentioned. During his annual address that he delivered in 2020, as president, he called for all SBC members to declare the slogan, Black Lives Matter. And in that same address, he denounced the use of the slogan, All Lives Matter. Okay? Now, in that address, he said, I do not align myself with the Black Lives Matter organization. But he wants all SBC members to shout their name and slogan? I mean, how, how blind can you be? Like, no, 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 don't say all lives matter because that's triggering. But yeah, definitely say Black Lives Matter. So he's a guy that said that. And then in 2021, during a speech that he gave to the SBC Executive Committee, he addressed the fact that conservative SBC members were publicly criticizing him and the SBC leadership for you know their leftward drift on social issues, which I think clearly they were doing. And how did he respond? By comparing those folks to terrorists. Okay, so here's a direct quote from that, that uh, speech he gave to the SBC Executive Committee. Every moment that you or me or Dr. Floyd engages in a silly argument or spends time debunking untruths is a moment I'm not focused on the Great Commission. I think we need an attitude like President George W. Bush called for in 2001. We make no distinction between those committing terrorism and those who harbor terrorists. What in the way? So you get criticized by conservatives and then you're like, yeah, they're just like terrorists. Really? And in that same speech, he said this, quote, we should mourn when closet racists and neo-Confederates feel more at home in our churches than do many of our people of color. So there's a grandiose sweeping statement that there are closet racists and neo-Confederates in the SBC churches, and that people of color can't feel comfortable. Like, that's, I mean, what in the world? Like, what a crazy, crazy thing to say out loud, much less think. And then also in the same speech, he said this, quote, I have received the emails and phone calls from people in our Southern Baptist churches who do fit that description. The reality is if we in the SBC had shown as much sorrow for the painful legacy that racism and discrimination has left in our country as we have passion to decry critical race theory, we probably wouldn't be in this mess. Which is just an astonishingly stupid thing to say. That all of a sudden, if you're a Southern Baptist church that you are not concerned about racism and you're not concerned concerned about the sin of partiality, but, oh, we're really, you know, uh, concerned about CRT and to do this false equivalency that we didn't fight against racism. So now we're fighting against CRT, like just an astonishing, astonishingly dumb thing for him to say. But also he literally describes the, the, the false accusations made against him from the conservative members as demonic. And this reminded me of what Matt Chandler did a couple of years ago when he was, you know, talking about race. And he basically said, if you think he's Marxist and you think uh, the stuff they're doing is critical race theory and blah, blah, and all that, well, that's not coming from a holy place. That's coming from Satan. And I was like, really? So someone criticizes you for buying a Marxist worldview hook, line, and sinker and then sneaking it into your church. We're demonic. Okay, that's rich. But, and again, I promise I'm going to go as fast as I can. The most egregious thing that we know that he did as SBC president, this is J.D. Greer, was the crap that he pulled 
at the SBC convention in 2019. So if you want to deeper dive into all this, go back to the interview I did with Tom Askell back in December. He, he gives some background and some details on this. But essentially, at, the, uh, at every SBC convention, there are resolutions that are voted on and passed. My understanding is that no resolution comes to a vote unless the Committee on Resolutions decides that a resolution can be voted on. Okay, so back in 2019 at the SBC convention, the chair of the Committee on Resolutions, a guy named Dr. Curtis Woods of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he oversaw the passage of eight resolutions in about 45 minutes. Okay, each of those eight re- resolutions were voted on and debated individually. Okay. But then, oddly, J.D. Greer, again, the president of the SBC at the time, made a very, very weird move. He called for a motion to pass resolutions 9 through 13 as a package. So the first eight were considered on their own individually, but then let's do 9 through 13 as a package. And because, again, all those other ones were debated and voted on individually. So why the sudden need to rush to approve five resolutions simultaneously? Well, it all hinged on Resolution 9. The name of that resolution was On Critical Race Theory and Intersectionality. Okay, so that resolution, Resolution 9, would approve the SBC-wide use of CRT and intersectionality as, quote, tools of analysis. Okay, tools of analysis. So there was a bit of a kerfluffle on the floor to make sure that they debated Resolution 9. My understanding is that they did so but in an unbelievably brief and insufficient way. And uh, Tom Askell offered an amendment to Resolution 9 that stated that CRT and intersectionality were incompatible with Christianity, but the amendment was denied and the resolution actually ended up passing. When the chair of that committee, Dr. Curtis Woods, rejected the amendment, he said this, quote, Critical race theory and and intersectionality are simply analytical tools. They are to be used as a tool, not a worldview. But obviously, with anybody with a functioning brain and more than two brain cells, knows that this is a farce. Tom Askell was and continues to be 100% right about CRT and intersectionality. It is, in fact, a worldview that is abiblical and antithetical to Christianity. But again, I take you way back to when J.D. Greer, yes, the same J.D. Greer that has this unbelievably awkward history with saying things that sound like they were written down for him by some purple-haired, nose-ringed, non-binary Cal Berkeley college professor was the one that suggested that we must combine Resolution 9 with four other resolutions and just, you know, pass it real quick so that everyone could go to, you know, get dinner or something like that. Excuse me. So am I to just assume that it was a coincidence? Like, am I just to assume that J.D. Greer only had the most integrity-filled reasons for wanting to do that? Or was something more nefarious afoot? And he was just blazing the trail for it. Because here's the thing that, that I know. In order for atheistic ideologies like communism, uh, now morphing into wokeism, you know, where you get CRT and all these other different things, in order for those things to work, in order for the plan to be carried out, you need two kinds of people, okay? Number one, you need conscious, nefarious actors. And number two, you need kind-hearted, useful idiots. That's what you need. Because the people that are driving the ideology, the people that are creating the ideology, those are the conscious, nefarious actors. But there aren't enough of those people to really make society-wide change. So you need a bunch of kind-hearted, useful idiots. And so I think of it like, (coughs) excuse me, I think of it like when you have a, a public school teacher that is teaching critical race theory things in their class, but they 
they call it something else. They're like, oh, it's not critical race theory. It's, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, who's it's, what's it, right? They're useful idiots. And I'm not saying all public school teachers or teachers of any kind are, use, are idiots, but I'm just saying that they're so kind-hearted and they don't want anyone to feel bad and they don't want anybody to, you know, feel as if they're being targeted. So they will just go along to get along, but that makes them a kind-hearted, useful idiot. So in J.D. Greer's case, I don't think he's a conscious, nefarious actor, if I'm being honest, but he certainly may be a kind-hearted, useful idiot. I guess time will tell. So uh, just to kind of conclude this, I do think that we need to keep an eye on Greer. Uh, he seems to be trending in a very dangerous direction, and hopefully he'll, he'll correct course quickly. You know, and just a reminder, guys, pastors, yours or, or someone else's, they're not in any way, shape, or form above correction or criticism. Okay, if you have a public profile, just like me, I get criticized all the time. Believe me, I should send you guys the emails. I get criticized all the time. If you're a public person, it is okay for you to be corrected and critiqued. And in this case, just like I said, I've tried to be as fair as possible to Andy Stanley last week and to J.D. Greer this week. I even tried to show you that there is a separation between those two, even though I think they're hanging out in some of the similar you know, philosophical circles. So there, we'll just kind of go ahead and put a bow on that for now. All right, so let's dig into what I want to talk about mainly for today. And in order to set up what I want to discuss with you today, I need to go over a couple of news stories with you. And again, just quick content warning. The first story that I'm going over has some very, very graphic sexual details. If you're listening to this with children, I would highly suggest you listen to this first and determine whether or not you, it's, it's okay for your kiddo. Again, this, it's rough, okay? So I'm not going to sanitize the details uh, or the language in this story. So discretion is encouraged if you have young listeners with you. So there, I've said it. But on January the 17th of this year, Townhall.com released an investigative report entitled Tapes. We investigated a suburban LGBTQ pedophile ring. Here's what we found. So very ominous title, and it only gets worse from there. So I'm going to give a link to the full article, and, and there's multiple articles that I'll just put in the show notes so you guys can read them later. But this was actually a follow-up article to a story that Townhall.com ran in August of last year of 2022, and I'll include that in the show notes as well so you guys can both read those. But this story is centered around William Dale Zolik Jr. and Zachary Jacoby Zolik. Okay, so they are a gay so-called married couple because, again, you can't be gay and be married. But, you know, technically in this country, you can be. They are activists in the LGBTQ plus movement. Uh, and in early 2018, they were allowed to adopt two young boys that were brothers. And I believe they were six and four at the time. And they did so through a so-called Christian special needs adoption agency. Okay, so remember that this is a gay couple, two men that adopted a six-year-old boy and a four-year-old boy. So many people said at the time and continue to say that this was a, a great thing, that these boys were adopted into a loving family and that this was a beautiful thing. Say, uh, but this couple spent the next several years taking those children, you know, gay pride parades and going to do lobbying for a bunch of left-wing causes. But then in August of last year, it was reported that both William and Zachary were arrested for sexually abusing their two young adopted boys and forcing them to perform in child pornography, okay? But now I just want to read directly to you from the updated Town Hall article from January. Again, discretion is advised. I can't give any more warning, so let me get a quick drink and we'll get after it. All right, here we go. A months-long Town Hall investigation reveals disturbing new details about the affluent LGBTQ activist couple accused of sodomizing their young adopted sons, now ages 9 and 11. The, distribu uh, the distribution of homemade child pornography of the sexual abuse, or sorry, I messed that up, but they're, they're now ages 9 and 11, and they distributed homemade child pornography that they did with these kids. So here, back to the article. 
Half a year after the shocking story made the national news, Town Hall is the only outlet following up on the criminal case in Georgia that has since seen zero headlines written about it. We found that it's far, far worse than what we first reported. Not only did the married men allegedly rape the two boys who were adopted through a Christian special needs adoption agency, they were pimping out their children to nearby pedophiles in Atlanta area suburbs, Town Hall's follow-up investigation discovered. Recorded jailhouse calls, a trove of never-before-seen court documents, and testimony from a family member who spoke exclusively to Town Hall under the extent uh, un- to uncover the extent of the physical and emotional trauma the two elementary school-age brothers endured, as well as the red flags that the state overlooked during the same-sex couple's faster-than-expected adoption process. The adoptive fathers, 33-year-old government worker William Dale Zulick Jr., and 35-year-old banker Zachary Zach Jacoby Zolik, who was previously accused of raping a child from Oxford, Georgia, have been indicted by a grand jury on charges of incest, aggravated sodomy, aggravated child molestation, felony sexual exploitation of children, and felony prostitution of a minor. William and Zachary are each facing over nine life sentences, and they've pleaded not guilty. According to a copy of the 17-count indictment Town Hall has obtained, the adoptive dads allegedly performed oral sex on both boys forced the children to perform oral sex on them, and anally raped their sons. In at least one instance, the anal rape injured the older Zolik child who just turned, thir- or just turned 11 years old in mid-December. Court records indicate that the child sexual abuse stretches back to as early as late 2019 and intensified in January of 2021, March 2021, and December 2021 as the, or as the offense dates are listed. William admitted to forcing his 11-year-old adopted son to perform an act of sodomy, a.k.a. oral copulation, on him with the intent to satisfy his own sexual desire, reads a sworn affidavit, affidavit filed in support of Williams' oversight arrest back in July, of 20, uh, July 27th. An updated criminal affidavit says the child sexual abuse was filmed by Williams' husband, Zachary, with whom he routinely engaged in sexual abusive acts on the boy. Zachary, the household's breadwinner, confessed to being the cameraman and authorities allegedly found a folder on his cell phone labeled us that contained videos of William sexually abusing the child. The indictment also charges the Zolik co-defendants with soliciting two other men through the use of popular social media platforms in the greater Atlanta metropolitan region to perform an act of prostitution with their child that suffered physical injuries from being brutally raped. Town Hall is the first to publicly identify these two alleged members of the pedophile ring in the heart of the Peach State. 27-year-old Hunter Clay Lawless and 25-year-old Luis Armando Viscaro Sanchez, both of Loganville. Lawless, who snitched on the Zolics, told local law enforcement he received numerous messages via Snapchat from Zachary about, quote, effing his son tonight. And I'm sanitizing just a little bit, but effing his son tonight and to be prepared to receive images as well as videos of the father raping the adopted child. Zachary met Lawless through a mutual contact, an unidentified man going only by the first name Blake on a gay dating app Grinder. Following the virtual introduction, Zachary sent photographs and videos to Lawless of a little boy he referred to as his son. Quote, I'm going to F my son tonight. Stand by. Unquote. Zachary allegedly messaged Lawless on Snapchat and then sent pictures of himself sexually abusing his 11-year-old child. After he was busted, Lawless denied having any physical contact with the Zolik boys but told law enforcement officers that Zachary invited him multiple times to engage in sexual acts with him and his two children. A list of the state's evidence includes 149 images collected at the Zolik home, two flash drives containing Zachary and Lawless's phone data, sexual assault nurse examination results from the children's medical forensics exams, which garnered DNA evidence such as bodily fluids and documented injuries, a text message from Lawless, 
a Snapchat letter, two written letters from older brother or from the older Zolik child, and a disk containing a data dump from Vizcaro Sanchez's iPad and iPhone. So we'll just let that sink in for just a moment there. It's it's unspeakable. I mean, as I was preparing this podcast, I was like, I'm fighting back tears, just so, so mad. Because I have two sons that are a couple of years apart. And these brothers, for years, were with these men. These demons would probably be a, a more apt way of describing them. And a side note to this story, by the way, to all of you uh, be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against people. What do you think about a story like that? Are you against that or do you, would it be unloving to talk about it? Cowards. And then also to all of the, you know, all the people that think that the death penalty for any crime is too harsh or for those that think the death penalty, you know, is rarely appropriate, but only for murder and not for any other crime. You still sure about that? You sure? Because these men are facing life in prison and not the death penalty. Do we need these two guys in society anymore? Again, innocent until proven guilty, but the evidence is damnable at this point. They need to have their day in court. But as I told you before, I don't think that the death penalty should be limited to murder. (coughs) Especially in this country where we typically only will take the lives of people that have murdered multiple people and had other extenuating circumstances. These two men, if convicted, should die immediately. You know, they, they get, you know, one appeal and then that day. So if, if their appeal is going to wrap up by noon that day, let, you know, anyone who still claims them know, hey, you're going to have a couple hours with them and then we're going to take them outside of town. We're going to put a bullet in the back of each of their heads and either the, the vultures will eat them or you can come and collect their terrible, worthless bodies. That's what I think that, that should happen. So that's obviously an extreme story. But then there was also a picture uh, within the last week that went viral that is going to play into kind of what we're talking about today. But it's a picture that was posted by Mark Lowen on Twitter. And it's a picture of two gay men holding a six-week-old baby. And this is what they wrote. After six weeks in wonderful Canada and tearful farewells to our incredible surrogate and friend, it's time to go home to Lisbon with our new family member, our most beautiful hand luggage. Canada, you are a shining light of democracy and equality. Thank you for letting us fulfill our dream. Okay, so two gay men, they obviously rented a woman's womb and, you know, woman has this baby. Six weeks later, these two gay men taking their baby back with them to Lisbon. Most people, or I would say a lot of people, not most people, a lot of people had very, very positive reactions to this. They, they said it was very, very beautiful. But then there were a lot of other people that said, yeah, this is actually pretty sad. And I would, of course, agree with those people. I'm sorry, guys, for the, for the multiple breaks. So the voice is really, really struggling right now. But with both of these kinds of stories, at least generically, gay couples adopting children, and in some cases using surrogates to have a family, we're being told that this is a beautiful thing. That is a common word that's used to describe what's happening, that it should be celebrated, that it should happen more and more, and that it's totally normal and healthy. But this won't come as a shock to any of you. I have a different view. I think that gay adoption and surrogacy is an ugly, ugly thing. It should not be celebrated. It should never happen, and it's totally not normal and not healthy. Now, am I saying that every gay couple that adopts little boys will end up raping them and pimping them out to other pedophiles? Of course not. Of course I'm not saying that. There are plenty of awful, demonic, sick parents in heterosexual relationships. 
But statistically speaking, children suffer physical and sexual abuse at the hands of men far more than they do at the hands of women. So putting them in a household with two adult men just increases the likelihood of abuse taking place. Again, statistically speaking, that is 100% true. But as I was thinking through those two news stories, um, you know, I was thinking a lot about gay adoption and gay surrogacy and really how ugly it is overall. With gay, and there's so many different reasons, but one of them is with gay marriage, it involves two consenting adults. With gay adoption, the children cannot consent to being raised that way. And I mean, when that, when that thought occurred to me, I was like, that needs to be talked about way more. Because, yeah, especially if you're a libertarian, it's like, yeah, they're, they're just gay dudes. They're going to go do their own thing. It doesn't bother me in my marriage. But when they start having families, when they start adopting children, when they start doing this, this weird in vitro fertilization, you know, swirl thing where we don't know whose semen is going to actually, you know, go into the egg and we, we don't know we're going to just going to put in some random woman's body or something like that or, you know, 20, 25 years in the future when we're going to have synthetic wombs or something like that, that's when it becomes an issue. Because children can't consent to being raised in a family like that. And another reason why I really think you should be against gay adoption and surrogacy is the father-mother children or father-mother-child family structure is literally the basis of human society and civilization. Because obviously we don't get human society and civilization without procreation. That only occurs with a man and a woman. Now we live in this modern time where you know, a man and a man or a woman and a woman or a single man or a single woman, they can just pretend that it's their, their child and they, they could just have one created in a lab for them or they can just adopt a kid or something like that. And, and all of a sudden, like that, that's, that's somehow supposed to be different. But the basis of human society crumbles. The foundation literally crumbles to ashes if you don't have father, mother, children. Natural, biological, father, mother, children. And also, when you're researching things like that, you'll, you'll find these studies, right? These studies that, you know, discover that children in same-sex households fare better or, or the same as their straight mother and father counterparts. But the thing about all these studies that I found, you know, when you dig in just a little bit, those studies are riddled with errors and inaccuracies. And I won't go into too much detail there because I, I'm going to link to a Heritage Foundation report that looked at these things that, you know, you get the big headline on Washington Post or New York Times or, or Vox or something like that. You know, uh, kids that are raised by, by two gay fathers or two lesbian mothers, they actually fare better than all the straight kids. No, actually they don't. Another reason why I really think that you should struggle and be against gay adoption and surrogacy is there's actually great evidence to suggest that children raised by homosexuals have a much higher likelihood of experiencing sexual and gender disorders. And we've kind of seen this, we, we kind of see this even just by looking at culture. Isn't it so interesting when you have these parents in California or, you know, in Chicago or in Portland or in Austin or in D.C. or in any of these liberal hubs, right? You have this one parent that'll have three kids. One of them's trans and one of them's pansexual. It's like, really? Like, statistically speaking, that's almost impossible. And I mean, Jordan Peterson even talked about this recently on a Joe Rogan podcast. It's like the, the, the chances of that are so unbelievably slim there's a much, much higher likelihood that one, if not both of the parents, are dis destructive narcissists. And they're literally influencing their kids to think that they are something that they're likely not. You're, you're being introduced to homosexuality 
in the household and in the the normalization of these reprehensible, abominable behaviors. And then that leads to the child experiencing sexual and gender disorders. Again, not great evidence at all for kids growing up in homosexual relationships or homosexual households having good outcomes on the back end. But great evidence to suggest that when that happens, it's actually way more negative for the children specifically because they create sexual and gender disorders. Another thing that I thought about is we already thought, you know, as society, as people that we could mess and and finagle with the traditional successful family structure and model and experience no issues. And just be honest, I don't think that we need to experiment with doing that again. Because, you know, back in the 60s, sexual liberation, you get into no-fault divorces. There's tons of divorced families and babies out of wedlock. The government sold a bill of goods to single mothers. Look, you don't need a man. Actually, if you have a man in the house, we're not going to be able to give you any money. So just if you want to have sex and, you know, do all your different things and and you get pregnant, you know, one, we'll we'll provide you a means to kill that baby. But if you want to keep that baby, don't worry about baby daddy. Don't worry about any of that stuff. We'll, We'll take care of you. You know, Uncle Sam will take care of you. And that has caused an unbelievable number of issues, society-wide. There are, I would say, probably the overwhelming majority of societal issues, not governmental issues or whatever, societal issues stem from fatherlessness because it's something that's been encouraged. You know, uh, you know hey, if this man's not meeting your needs, just leave him, don't worry, we'll take care of you. And the problem that it creates is, you know, I guess why in the world do we think that adding gay and lesbian parents to the mix would be a good idea. So we, we thought, you know, no fault divorce would be a good idea. We thought, you know, women not having a man in their life, you know, fathers not being around their kids. We thought all that was a good idea. And now we're supposed to listen to you when you say, oh yeah, having gay and lesbian parents, that's, that's going to be no problem. And I think it stems from uh, another concern, which is pretending like homosexual relationships and heterosexual relationships are fundamentally the same and superficially different is literally the exact opposite of reality. They're, they're, they're superficially the same and fundamentally different, okay? Because homosexual relationships don't even provide for the opportunity to naturally procreate. So just by that one stance, homosexual relationships and heterosexual relationships are completely fundamentally different. And yes, they're in heterosexual relationships. There are people that biologically cannot conceive for whatever reason. And it's typically heartbreaking, right? And there are means by which that can be uh, taken care of and uh, that, that you, you can work around that. And there's different things that I'm not going to get into today where people can still have a family. Okay. Cause I would certainly never say to anyone that's an adoptive parent that you're, you're somehow doing something wrong. I personally know women that cannot conceive, but they are the best mamas to, to the, the families and the children that they've adopted. So obviously I'm not going against just normal adoption, but to say that those types of relationships are the same fundamentally at its core, when you're looking at truth, It's just not real. But then also, promiscuity in gay relationships, so specifically to men, promiscuity in those relationships is astonishingly high. That's kind of like a joke in the gay community to where it's just like every married man kind of also has boyfriends on the side. That's just something that they do. There's not this overwhelming focus. Again, this is, you know, a satanic worldview that even leads to where homosexuality is normalized. But it's not even a, a normal thing for you to be just dedicated to your one partner, your one homosexual partner. Again, that's a joke in the gay community that they have so many sexual partners. And so when you think about that in a family context, if that happens in your family context, don't you think that's going to have an impact on children? 
You're already showing them homosexual relationships as if that's a natural thing. It's not even, again, take spirituality, take God out of it. It's not natural in nature. Because again, if you just think that we're all just highly evolved chimps and there's just a bunch of highly evolved things running around, like two females or two males having sex with one another doesn't lead to the propagation of the species. And so they're already seeing that nonsense in a human form in their household. But then what if promiscuity comes in? And I guess one, one last one that I want to talk about here is just surrogacy commodifies or, or commodifies the wombs of women. That's what surrogacy is. I don't see a good argument for surrogacy for gay couples where you literally just put this, you just inject this, uh, you know, sperm and egg and this zygote and you just inject it into a woman and you're basically renting her womb from her. That was one of the things that whenever Russia invaded Ukraine, Ukraine is one of the, the biggest countries for surrogacy. And that was really going to hurt their surrogacy numbers, which was going to hurt their, uh, their GDP. But it's like, where are the second, third, and fourth wave feminists on surrogacy? On women, because we, we're, you know, we're not supposed to objectify women, turn them into objects. What is surrogacy for gay couples doing? You're literally creating an object that you're inserting something into and then you're getting it out on the back end and pretending it's yours and pretending it's beautiful. But if I were to coalesce all this down, I would say that my main reason for feeling this way, that, that gay adoption and surrogacy is ugly and that we shouldn't do it, is that children deserve a mother and a father. They indeed deserve a mother and a father. Now, in our modern time, the word deserve is definitely overused. I deserve free health care. I deserve to have you pay for my college. That's obviously not something that comes into play here. But children literally long for their biological parents. Gay adoption and surrogacy just exacerbates the spate of children that live apart from their mothers and fathers. For any of you parents out there that have adopted children, you know this to be true. You painfully know this to be true. That when the child figures out or finds out that you are not their biological parents, Again, there's, there's beauty in the fact that you're parenting that kid, so I want to edify you in that way. But they have a longing for their biological mother and father. And so allowing gay adoption and surrogacy literally increases the spate of children that are going to be going through that. And also, in lesbian or you know, singer mother, single mother households caused by you know, gay adoption or surrogacy, it creates a very detrimental situation where the children grow up without their fathers. Again, I've talked about this a lot. Go by The Boy Crisis by Warren Farrell. Read that. When dads are not present, when fathers are not present in a society, the society crumbles. Again, the stats are damning. For, for little girls, sexual promiscuity goes up. Grades goes down. Criminality goes up. STDs goes up. For boys, violence goes up. Murders go up. Uh, again, sexual promiscuity goes up. Grades go down. Like, you know, their ability to, to earn money and get an education over their life. It's all affected by whether or not dad is there. And so in these single mother households, because I, you know, I know that there are people out there that will literally have a sperm donor so that they can get pregnant so that they can be a single mother, hoping one day they'll have a husband. And if not, they're choosing single motherhood. And statistically speaking, you know, they're exposing that child to an undue amount of risk. And children need both. Because the same is true in the opposite. In gay or single father households caused by gay adoption and surrogacy, it creates a very detrimental situation where children grow up without their mothers. Because I know this is shocking to say in 2022, mothers and fathers give different types of things to their children. 
you know, fathers speak to them in a different way. They call them up in a different way. They, they show them how to protect. Uh, it's more aggressive the the rough housing, all those different things. Again, read the boy crisis. It's, it's a, it's a must read book for anyone with sons, but then children need mothers too. Literally this morning, I, I snuck in behind my son. He's sitting at our, uh, you know, cause we have these bar stools and he's sitting at our, at our Island and his, his face is basically at, you know, uh, eye level with the Island, right? The, the, the countertop. And I sneak up behind him and I go to like, you know, blow a, blow a raspberry or whatever on his neck. And he, you know, he laughs and like jerks his head away and bangs his head on the counter. Okay. Completely my fault. Immediately felt like I felt this big and I felt like a heaping pile of crap. Just the worst possible situation. I go to hug him and, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm, I'm patting his head and all that. And what do you bet he did? He, he pushed me away and ran to mom. Now. I was the source of the problem, right? Because I'm the one that technically made him hurt himself. So I'm the one that hurt him. But had he even just fallen down in any other time where he falls down or bumps into something, he doesn't run to dada. He runs to mama. Children need that. They absolutely need that. And now, of course, that can't always be possible. There are fathers that, that leave. There are fathers that die. There are mothers that die at childbirth. This product of the fall is we have all these detrimental things that happen to life. So that's not always possible. But we as a society should always shoot for the ideal over the convenient. Always shoot for the ideal over the convenient. Because there's a situation that came up even here recently, and I have to be careful because the person may be listening to this, but it was a single guy. And I met him because there was some work that we were both doing. This was years ago. And he's one of those guys that the moment I shook his hand and met him, I'm like, oh, this guy's gay. But then he started like talking about his girlfriend and some of his relationships that had gone awry. And I'm like, oh, this guy doesn't realize he's gay yet. And it was just something that, that popped up in my head. It's like, this guy's very clearly a homosexual, but he just hasn't gotten there yet, I guess. Okay. And this is a guy who goes to church and he volunteers and all those different things. But I found out years later that he had become somehow a foster parent and he was fostering like an 11 year old or 12 year old boy. And then he adopted this boy. And then the next time I heard about this man, it was because he came out as homosexual. And again, I don't know this guy personally. I have no idea what's going on in their house. But it's not exactly a secret that a lot of adult homosexual men have boyfriends that are underage. That's, I mean, that's something that gets a lot of people canceled even talking about something like that. Like there was that conservative commentator that got canceled for pointing that out. Like, uh, what was his name? Milo Yiannopoulos. Yeah, he just pointed that out. He's like, yeah, it's not that big a deal. Obviously, I think it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal because it's a homosexual relationship, but it's also a huge deal because it's pedophilia. But this is something that is common in the gay community. Again, it's, I'm not making that up. I'm not throwing stones. I'm just describing reality. And so it's like, in that situation, what was the wisdom behind giving this young boy to this man? Like, what kind of follow-up is there? Like, it's just, it's a, it's a terrible situation all the way around, in my opinion. But the bottom line here is, is no matter who does the study, as long as you know, it's an honest and well-done study, when it's done, the truth is this. More healthy children come from families with a father and a mother, both in the home, where the father is the breadwinner, the mother is mainly taking care of the house, and where the family is involved in the local church than any other kind of arrangement. That's it. Hard stop. Period. End of story. Father and mother, both living in the home, Married, father's breadwinner, mother typically takes care of the household, and the family is involved in a local church. 
the outcomes for those children in those families is higher than any other possible scenario that you could put out there. So when I talk about the ideal, that's what I mean. So we shouldn't make it easier for us to usurp the ideal, to chop out the, the, the foundations of the ideal. But we also, as we wrap up here, we need to talk about this from a biblical perspective, okay? Because normalizing babies in same-sex scenarios would continue to erode God's very first command to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and increase in number. That's Genesis 1.28. And then be fruitful and multiply. That's repeated for Noah's family in Genesis 9. So, again, when you normalize babies being thrust into these same-sex scenarios, you're going directly against God's mandate and commands. Also, as I mentioned earlier, God gave us marriage. And he gets to define it because he's the one that invented it. Okay, so Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother or his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Where do we get this concept of marriage? Two highly evolved chimps being with one another? That. That's where we get that idea. Okay? So the, the federal government of the United States doesn't get to define what marriage is. You don't get to define what it is for you and your truth and your lived experience. God does. But also, we see in Matthew 19 that Jesus upholds the sanctity of marriage. Read Matthew 19. It's very interesting. And so I, I guess to kind of put a bow on all this, guys, this is a hard one for a lot of reasons. This is a very difficult thing to talk about uh, because of the things that happen, because of the negative things that happen. All of this is a product of brokenness, that we live in a post-Genesis 3 world, that we're even talking about these things is because of that. So above all of these things, if you don't have the blood of Christ, if you're not covered by the blood of Christ, if you don't have your faith in the fact that he is your, the resurrected Savior and he died so that you could have a way to the Father, that's a problem. That's something that you need to reckon with. You may have never prayed before because you don't think that God exists. Pray as if he does exist. Reach out to him and say, hey, reveal yourself to me. Get yourself a Bible. I, I promise, hey, wherever you're at in America, you can find one in about five minutes, right? You can download one on your phone in the next 30 seconds, okay? Read through the scriptures. Read through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see if the story of Jesus resonates with you. Ask God to reveal himself to you. I think you'll be shocked at what you find. But specifically to gay adoption and surrogacy. Don't be one of those go-along-to-get-along Christians. Don't be one of those loser cowards that's just like, oh, I want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against. If things are ugly and sinful, it is incumbent upon you to point it out and fight against it. We talk about love. That's kind of the new thing. Like, oh, you know, we're just going to love. We're not going to talk about your sin. We're just going to love. It is unloving to ignore someone's sin because it's their sin that sends them to hell. So no, you should not support gay relationships. You should not support gay marriage, which is, you know, basically gay mirage. It's not a real thing. And gay adoption and surrogacy. Don't be one of those Christians that I've talked to that are like, well, I guess it's you know better for them to be in a gay household than it is for them to be in foster care. How do you know that? Why would you even say such a thing? To pretend as if that you really agree with a Judeo-Christian ethic and with the father, mother, children set up, and then say something like that. Oh, it's probably better. If you think about it for any length of time, that's not where you're going to end up. 
All right, guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. Out on Daunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So again, go to the Origin website to check out their full line of Origin and Jocko Fuel products. That's skis, jeans, boots, protein, energy drinks, supplements, and much more. Get some hunting gear as well. They got the, all that stuff over there now. They got a new parka. It's awesome. Use the code UNDAUNTED to get 10% off your order. Again, if you want to enter into the raffle for the Stevenson Knife, go to our donation page. Every $20 that you donate will put you into the randomizer one time. Make sure you put the word knife in the show notes, make or not in the show notes, but in the comment section, make sure you put that there. There's also a link to the Stevenson's website. I've got all the town hall articles and then that link to the Heritage Foundation article that I mentioned earlier as well. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah <laughs>